Welcome to Amidon Planet. I'm your host, Joel Amidon. Thank you for joining me in this never-ending quest to learn how to teach better. Today on episode 102 of the podcast, we're talking about one of my favorite books, The Long Haul, an autobiography by Miles Horton with Herbert and Judith Cole. I'm joined for this conversation by, by my son, Noah Amidon, who is uh, freshly home from his first quarter at college. And we both had the opportunity to read this when we did his uh, kind of year of discipleship. Uh, kind of talked about that with Eric George a few episodes, uh, many episodes ago, uh, about what that was about. But this is one of the books that we read. Um, it's one of my, the most influential books on me and what I do and how I do it. And glad to revisit it because I'm still learning lessons and still using things I've learned from here and how he puts things into action that I can I can keep learning, keep growing. And so glad to talk about it. I fe- feels like in this episode where I talk with Noah, it's going to sound like uh, kind of a fire hose, of, uh, like an audio fire hose, because it's just there's so much in this book. And, you know, part of it is I have this false sort of thing that, hey, if I talk about a book, I can't talk about it again. But this is my podcast. I can do what I want. <laughs> so I might talk about this book again after reflecting on it because um, there is so much in it and there's different perspectives you can take on it. And again, the lessons I've learned on how to teach better, how to um, interact with teachers, interact with students, interact with schools, a lot of it's come here. And then there's also there's a lot of connections between what we talked about here and probably what we talked about with Kurt Candler uh, when in, in his book, uh, if you want to, if you really want to help um, and then helping without hurting that book too. I mean, all those sorts of things, lots of lessons and just even just the idea about love that Miles Horton talks about as this guiding principle from when he was a kid. And so excited to have this conversation, excited to talk about this book for the first and maybe not for the last time. Um, yeah. And so just want to, I want to share it with you. So uh, without further delay, let's read the disclaimer. <laughs> As always, know that uh, we'll not be able to communicate the whole value of the book. And even if we did, it would be from our perspective. In other words, if you like what you hear, get the book. Seriously, go get the book. Uh, right now, you can find it, uh, I guess, probably on bookshop.org. Otherwise, this might be a good one for a used bookstore. So go find it wherever you can. Um, also, maybe at your local library. So just know that, hey, we're not going to get the whole value of the book. So go find it for yourself. Uh, without further delay, though, in reality, here is my conversation with Noah Amidon on The Long Haul, an autobiography by Miles Horton with Judith Cole and Herbert Cole. Noah Amidon, welcome back. Wait, do you really leave Amidon Planet? I don't know. Uh, I've heard there's a separate group chat without me. <laughs> I've heard it's called AP minus Noah. <laughs> That uh, is true. There is a uh, non-Noah Amadon Planet chat. So maybe I'm like, right. I'm like Pluto right now. That's actually kind of embarrassing. Anyway, welcome back to Amadon Planet. Uh, thank you for uh, being willing to chat with me today. No problem. Happy to be here. You don't have a lot going on anyway? Nope. All right. So Noah is uh, back from college and willing to come on and talk about my... You know this is my favorite book? It is? It is. My favorite book, The Long Haul. An autobiography of Miles Horton. An autobiography. It's by Miles Horton. <laughs> well, it's weird because it, it is by Miles Horton, but Judith Cole and Herbert Cole helped him write it. 
but like they just ha- helped him like I think just tell his stories and then they put it together and he yeah I mean uh, th- th- I mean that's that's how autobiographies are though the ghostwriters and all that wow thanks for your expertise Noah no problem that's, appreciate it um so we read this book together yes we did but let me tell you where I first read it Gloria Ladson Billings remember her. She's at the University of Wisconsin. She yes. uh, wrote the book Dream Keepers, Legend, Education Legend. Got it. And I want to say Phil Caldwell, the third, who was a grad student at the University of Wisconsin. Okay. And he came over and he we did a research project where you played the Wii. I don't know if you remember that. I played a lot of Wii. Anyway, it was for, we did research on it All right. for, some, for some class. Anyway, I believe they both recommended this book to me. Okay. And I had never heard of Miles Horton. Have you ever heard of Miles Horton? Um, before reading this book, no, I had not. But he's popped up in more recent studies. Because I think we read that, read the book, what? It would have been... When you turned 13. Yeah, so like five years ago. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and before that, I had never heard of him. But yeah, now he pops up every now and then. Where is he popping up? Huh? I take public policy classes. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. He shows up. He's an uh, important labor figure. Yeah. yeah that's yeah. right. He's an important guy. Like, big guy in the unions and the, all the labor stuff um, and, and communism. But that little thing. But he yeah. was a socialist. Not, yeah, socialist. Not a communist. But, yeah. Yeah, and he's very particular about that in the book. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So um, how close you read it. Anyway, um, uh, Gorlatz and Billings, Phil Collard both said, hey, you need to read this about this guy. I never heard of him. But then when you look in the book, you'll find picture. There's a real famous picture that's actually at the Wisconsin Historical Society. Did you know that? I didn't know. A lot of these pictures from, uh, if you look at the citations. Okay. And they they talk about um, Miles Horton, um, or they have all this documentation about Miles Horton. Anyway, he was a civil rights leader. He was a um, union organizing leader and ran the Highlander Folk School. But anyway, this famous picture in there has him, Pete Seeger, the famous folk singer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, Ralph Abernathy, Martin Luther King Jr., and Rosa Parks. Just like a dream team right there. That's right. Basically. That's right. And it just and it just gets you like, well, who is this guy? Who's Miles Horton? Like, like I don't know who Miles Horton or the other. And I think one of his children's in that book, in that picture, as well. And so this book is all about him and his life, and just I want to say like how he grew up and figured out what he wanted to do with his life. And it was beyond just I want to go do some good in the world, but actually having guiding principles and then going and educating himself on how best to set up a space to help people solve problems. And that's what he was doing. But he was kind of, I mean, I kind of want to swear because he was kind of a bad bleep. He was a, he was, he was a, not, I mean, he just took action. Like that yeah, was yeah. his thing. It oh, was yeah, not yeah. Just, just like just I'm gonna just do it. Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. Like and you think about when in education, and I'm a professor, talk about Ivory Tower stuff. Yeah. And he was not someone that stuck in this. So anyway, I want to get into this book. This is again my favorite book, The Long Haul Autobiography by Miles Horton, and then Judith Cole and Herbert Cole, not the Senator Herbert Cole <laughs> from Wisconsin, but uh education author Herbert Cole, who's got some good stuff as well. Maybe we'll talk about him on future episodes documenting his life. And so there's 
I mean, it's just in his voice, in his words, and it just goes through things. And I just wanted to bring out a bunch of these. I actually wanted this to be the hundredth episode, um, but you know, it's just a number, whatever. So, but I, I've wanted to talk about this book since the start of this podcast. So I'm actually maybe putting too much. Yeah, I didn't realize there's this much pressure on this. Po- <laughs> this is this is the hundredth episode. No, too? this is not the hundredth. No. This is yeah. Thanks for paying attention. Um, this is this will be the hundred and second. But that's it oh. is the hundred and second. So welcome, welcome to Amazon Planet, Noah. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those books that's just it sticks with me. And when I think about what like what I want to be when I grow up, I think about Miles Horton. And actually, in my dissertation study, uh, I called the high school. You know, you have to use pseudonyms. Highlander High School. Nice. And then I called the two, like, uh, my two critical friends in my study. Yeah. Ms. Miles and Mr. Horton. That's how. Yeah. Yeah. This is at the core. Nice. So there's a a nice uh, quote that starts off the book that I wanted to use to kind of kick us off in our conversation, even though we've been talking probably for 10 minutes now. Um, And this is from Mordecai Pinckney Horton from 1858 to 1934. Obviously a relative. Yes. You can hitch your wagon to the stars, but you can't haul corn or hay if its wheels aren't on the ground. You can hitch your wagon to the stars, but you can't haul corn or hay in it if its wheels aren't on the ground. And I think that is a perfect quote for this book because he, Miles Horton, I believe, was an idealist, but at the same time, he lived in reality. And he acted in reality. And it's just, he did never like, everything he he did was like, it has to be tied to action. And I think that's so very, very important. And that's like a big message that I think needs to be just shared nowadays, especially just in my own education. What I'm seeing is just, there's a lot of, a lot of people are, they have their, their eyes set to the stars. They want to accomplish all these like huge and giant things. And they're like, all right, how can we get there? More so just, but more thinking like, let's just, how do we get to this end goal? How do we get to the, the product? Rather than thinking about like, how do we build up a strong foundation um, to start at the very bottom and just, just to start working and doing the little, little things and doing them very well so that we can build up to the stars. Um, I think that's something that's been often lost Yeah. Um, right now, especially. Well, friend of the show and friend of us, uh, Dr. Ann Monroe, who's been yes. on this podcast many times. We talk about this in our in our regular meetings. Um, when people come in, they say the same thing. They want to do these big things, but they don't want to be in the weeds. And like that's where action happens. It's in the weeds. You got to oh, be yeah. in the weeds, especially in education. Um, and so just, you know, one of the things that started off the book that I wanted to touch on was he used love as a guiding principle, which sounds familiar, right? Yeah. And, you know... My faith is important to me, and I think that faith is important to us as a family. And so, you know, thinking about our, like, kind of motto is love God and love others. And, and here's what, um, in Miles Horton, talking about his early bringings up and, and being in the church and then talking about, you know, wanting to learn more about God. And he was diving in actually into theology books when he was a kid, which was kind of, you know, hey, it kind of tells you something normal for kind of, yeah, kind of tells us something about Miles Horton. But, uh, and this was a quote he, he has in the book. And he said, mom laughed and said, don't bother with that, which means the theology books. That's not important. That's just preacher's talk. The only thing that's important is you've got to love your neighbor. She didn't say love God. She said, love your neighbor. That's 
all it's all about. She had a very simple belief. God is love, and therefore, you love your neighbors. Love was a religion to her. That's what she practiced. It was a good non-doctrine background. It gave me a sense of what was right and what was wrong. Again, that idea of you know hitching your wagon to the stars, but it's got to be practical. Under it. So like, yeah, love God, but you're going you're gonna to show that by loving your neighbors. Yes, definitely. And like uh, that entire concept of how, how do we love our neighbors um, when just thinking about that, it breaks down the entire, like a lot of people come to the Bible and they come very, very um, skeptical and they, they find it very difficult to approach. Um, that's actually something I found in my classes this year. I took a writing seminar all about uh, politics and ethics in the Bible. And so we're talking about rules, we're talking about laws and all of that. Um, and essentially I mean, what was hard for people to grapple is that all these, like, there's like, what, 600 and something laws in the Bible. But at the end of the day, they all come down to just love your neighbor. Um, and that, that d- kind of doctrine makes it, is, makes it more simple for us to take teachings of the Bible and apply them into our daily lives when we think about how we can just do everything that we do, and in this case, uh, education, how we can just teach just through loving our neighbor. And that way, that way, we, if you if you are a religious person, you can be following the work of God as long as you're just thinking about, all right, how can I do this in the most loving way possible? Um, which at times can be difficult, um, which at times can be messy, but um, just thinking that, yeah, how can we love? And then on the other point of, of just talking about how um, Horton was studying these theological texts, I think that shows also kind of, just to kind of get back and tell me if I'm getting off track and you want to get back to later. Um, but just that kind that that just shows kind of the thinking that he had um the idea of hey i don't want to just accept what a preacher is telling me i don't want to just take it at face value as like as what someone is just just telling me is the words of god he wanted to investigate it for himself and to figure out it hey like what actually like does this say which again is going past the face value um and being that more investigative uh, thinkers that we need in our society and looking further than just, all right, th- this is what this one person is telling me that this says. Yeah. And, and so what I like to talk about with my students, so like, you know, we're talking about this book cause I think that there's, there's lessons to be applied to teaching. Obviously this book influenced me and in thinking about teaching math as agape or teaching as agape. And then thinking about that idea of unconditional love and you know, what he was doing in preparation for, what he would eventually do in starting the Highlander Folk School, but just this idea of wanting to live out loving your neighbor. And so thinking about that from a teaching perspective, I just like it, like the idea of having a guiding principle and a guiding statement, a guiding philosophy, and then helping that help you make decisions going forward. And throughout this book over and over again, you get to see how this idea of loving your neighbors, loving others, helping people solve problems is like, guides everything he does towards, you know, what he was trying, trying to learn, the the activities he engaged in, and eventually the things that he did in uh, both in the uh, labor organizing uh, efforts and then within the civil rights movement. And so having love, like teaching, like, so what lessons for teaching is like having that sort of guiding principle. And I don't think there's anything better than that idea of loving your neighbor. Because when you think about 
all he did in preparation. And so, I mean, he would go and study in Chicago with Jane Adams at the, I believe it's the new school. And then he went to Denmark to look at folk schools and he went to Union Theological Seminary to learn about more. Like he just kept learning, learning, learning. It was all for these people that he wanted to help solve their problems that he didn't even know yet. Right. He didn't yeah. even have that relationship, but he was still loving on them by preparing himself for those situations. Yeah, exactly. Like this entire, yeah, the entire concept of love your neighbor takes so much different uh, views. Like um, something that I just finished a uh, term paper on um, was talking about how can we love our neighbors by waging war? Um, and we just get and get down to like the point of like criminal punishment. Like, are you loving your neighbor by locking up somebody who could potentially cause your neighbor harm? Like, and but that person who you're locking up is also your neighbor. So it just it does get very complicated. Um, but it, that entire concept is also very nuanced. Um, and it doesn't necessarily mean just like be a pacifist or you have to, to, um, just do all of these things perfectly. And it, it, it does require, um, some thought and it can be applied to many, many different circumstances. Um, and doesn't always look the same for every single person. That's a great lead in Noah. Cause oh, we awesome. gonna, yeah, cause that's over and over again he talks about this idea about oversimplification of these principles, because if they're not, again, not tied to action, then they're, we're just pie in the sky stuff. Right. And then what do we really mean? So like he even talks about, he talks about nonviolence and pacifism a lot because, you know, he was in these groups where they're talking about nonviolence and he had a story about a lynching that was going to be the, that happened in Texas. Yes. Yeah. Um, brutal story. I mean, it, they kind of, the man was arrested, was accused of a murder. Um, a lynch mob developed and the, but then the national guard was brought in in order to protect this uh, person. But then the, the national guard would not commit violence against the mob and yeah. then came in and lynched the, the person that was in jail that was incarcerated, that was a, um, accused of this crime. Yeah. And he was on this, in a part of this group, I think the Fellowship of Reconciliation Group is a pacifist anti-war organization. Anyway, and so he was trying to say like, you were for nonviolence, but in order to stop this this murder, they would have needed to engage in violence. Oh, yeah. But then he said, so, but he was like trying to show them the hypocrisy of their ways. And like, yes, these national guardsmen engaged in nonviolence. He's like, maybe we should, uh, should, uh, uh, you know, have a resolution commending them for not using violence. And the organization actually did it. And he was like, wow. should I even step in the way of this? Because they just, they did something silly. And then the, the leader came back, who was gone from that meeting, came back, looked at them and it's like, wait, 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 what happened? They made a, a recommendation for these people that allowed a lynching. Like, no, 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 no. And he's and that's over and over again. He wanted to put people into place where they're confronted with a dilemma, and you have to make them act. And he, like in this yeah. case, like the 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 you know, this is not right. What was happening here was not right. And so, um, you know, having these principles, but there has to be again rooted in reality. Same thing goes for another situation that he put people in where he had a YMCA banquet and this was in 1928. He was in, in school and uh, he had this banquet that he was organizing, but he organized it around uh, making a statement against segregation. So, cause he invited kids of all different races, you know, black, white, whatever to come to uh, what 
uh, where is it in Knoxville, Knoxville, Tennessee, oh, okay. Knoxville. Everyone's going to go to Knoxville, Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. But he he doesn't say it's an integrated banquet. He just says, mm-hmm. hey, we're gonna we need 120 people to feed 120 people. Organize it, and all of a sudden they they just and they enter in the right off the street into the banquet hall, and everyone sits down. And yeah. so all of a sudden you have 120 kids all sitting together, integrated together across this room. Yeah, yeah. They've organized, they paid for their, or they're organized, they're, they're going to pay for this food. All of a sudden the wait, waiting staff comes in, an all black wait staff comes in and says, we can't serve you because it's against the, the laws yeah, yeah. here. And he's like, well, we could leave, but <laughs> we, we're not paying, <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> we ordered it. We, you have all the food, you're ready to service. You might as well just, just service the food, right? And they did. Wow, and that's what I mean. And th- again, nineteen what is it? Nineteen twenty-eight, nineteen twenty-eight. That that happened, right? Wow, yeah. But he, I mean, and again, he would do this over and over again, where he would put people, and that's why I say, like, he was a strategic, thoughtful, but yet putting people in positions where, all right, let's let's challenge this. Yeah, yeah. Because this isn't right, right? Yeah. Th- this might not be legal, but it's not right. And yeah. so let's make it, let's put people in these places where we can get some, some action to happen where people can see, Hey, this was, <laughs> this might've been against it, but this wasn't bad to have yes. people eating together. And yeah. And like, and that's just like the instances that, yeah. And then we can apply that to modern day and just like taking things out of the classroom, taking things out of the halls of uh, Congress. And just like when we look at things in like their actual practical state, um, which is not done enough, it, Often that can make it a lot clearer on what to do when you just think, okay, wait, these are like, act, like let's make, instead of just thinking about theoretical numbers and figures, when we take it and we, we make it actual people in an actual scenario, the decisions become a lot, lot easier and there's a lot more consensus. Um, and yeah, we can take that kind of lesson from uh, Mr. Horton um, and apply that to today. Yeah. Yeah. He was, I mean, just like the, the example that he put for not only all the kids in the there and those are all you know again YMCA youth that were yeah. in that room. Then there are also the wait staff, and then eventually probably in the hotel, the people like, hey, we just had this banquet. Yeah, like we we kind of made some history right here, and maybe we weren't completely um, knowledgeable about it, but mm-hmm. we're still here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Like, you know? yeah, nothing bad happened. Nothing like- bad happened, and so he would over and over again um, talk about the. Yeah, that idea of putting people in a dilemma where they have to act. And he actually did some kind of organizing more stuff. Again, as a young, as a young, as a teenager, where he's like building boxes um, and they're only making like a half a cent a box for when they're um, boxing up tomatoes or something. And he realizes like, man, they're really underpaid. They have to make a lot of boxes to make (laughs) any money at all. And then he's like, well, these tomatoes are going to keep coming in. Yeah. And if we stop making boxes, they're going to have an issue. Yeah. And it was his first time organizing where he got everyone, all the kids that were making boxes, like, hey, let's just stop making boxes until we get a raise. Like, hey, no, you can't do that. We, we can just get somebody else. <laughs> no, you can't. It's a small town. They were the only ones that could make these boxes. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah, building on that idea of like, well, it's funny. It's, it, it kind of proves that like he'd probably never heard of a union at that point. Right. Like, it, like that would have been like a complete foreign concept. But when you just look at that and just think, like, that's kind of just like a natural, logical instinct. Like, hey, we're not being treated right. Let's just let's not work. Like, we're not going to work until they say that 
they give us better conditions. They're not going to work until they pay us better. Like, just whenever you, you group up, you become powerful. And that's just a very natural instinct. And it's not like the idea of a big bad union that like people try to suggest. It's just, it's very natural. Um, and something that like it's not even, uh, it's not necessarily a foreign, even, or even though the idea of a union is a foreign concept, the idea of striking is not. Right. Um, it's a very natural thing. Yeah. And so it's just like if someone's not being like, in this case, a, um, a business yes. was not treating its workers well, was not loving on their neighbor. Like the loving thing to do as, as a collective is to help each other out so that we can get better living conditions, yeah. better, uh, yeah. better wages. Well, and then that's all, I mean, and that's where it gets the, the nuance comes in. It's like, well, in order to love your fellow coworker to, to strike with them, you're not being very loving to the business owner at that moment. Like, right. Realistically, like you're cutting them off from like, they're going to be losing money because of that. Their livelihood. Yeah, exactly. Like this isn't loving to them, but in order for the greater good, you have to prioritize because also then if you're not, if you don't strike with your fellow coworkers, you don't organize that. Well, you're not being loving to your, your friends. So in your coworkers, those are the same level as you. Cause, and so that's where like the nuance of love your neighbor comes in is that like, guess what? Like in order to be loving to people, you can't be loving to everyone. Yeah. Um, but you have to acknowledge that whatever can provide a greater good, um, that kind of utilitarian concept um, has to be prioritized. Yeah. And so he kind of talks about this idea, this clash between um, kind of poverty or some of the problems that exist between poverty and justice. And he, there's a quote here. Um, the final clash between our current economic morality and the ethic of Jesus is over the nature of man. The capitalist economy rests on the hypothesis that man is a creature who prefers material comforts to moral values, who would rather have an increase in goods than in the quality of existence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, so his, so his, I mean, and he grew up really poor in the Appalachian mountains yeah, yeah. and he saw people just scraping by in existence and that just, and you can kind of see it throughout. And they, and but they also too, a family that highly valued education, that moved, even though they didn't have a lot of money, still moved around in order to make sure that he got a, a quality education. You can kind of see some of the movements he was already doing yeah, yeah. as a as a teenager. He was he was making some uh, good ideas. Also, excellent football player. I would say <laughs> uh, there's a story in there about him knocking out a star running back for the other team. He was, I would say, the Von Miller. He was a, oh, wow. a defensive tackle, a Von Miller of Appalachia. Wow. Um, back in the day. Um, but anyway, um, this idea of kind of melding social justice and love together. Yeah. And again, this is kind of right at the heart of no pun intended of what I was, what I love thinking about. Um, and so he eventually keeps going on and he, he becomes like a kind of a youth leader at one point in time, which is kind of unique. Um, and during that time, he knew that there was problems. Again, he was someone that wanted to help people solve problems. Yeah. And he kind of tripped into this, what he calls his ozone period. It was like uh, the town was called Ozone that okay. he was working in. And he was doing some things in that community uh, with the where he'd do the youth group. He'd do like some, I think, Bible camp or whatever. And then he would also just have meetings afterwards where you would talk to the adults that were, you know, with their kids and talk about, Hey, so how do we, what are some, noticing some problems? Like, what do we do about that? What do we do about these problems? And not like coming in with answers, but just like starting conversations. Cause he remembered as a kid, like 
family uh-huh. members or neighbors would gather around and people would start talking about problems and someone would say, well, hey, I've tried this. I've had the same problem. I tried this. And then they would be helping each other in the, his, you know, from his childhood community, like helping each other solve problems. And he just facilitated those conversations yeah. in this youth group experience. And it was like he was tripping on this idea of what the Highlander Folk School would be before he even got there. Yeah. Before he even had the education and, or the names or like, um, yeah, how to name those actions. And I think we see that a lot of times with teaching. We're yes. teaching teachers will come up with something and there might not be a name for the technique or the thing, or they might not know the name or the technique. Like, Hey, you're, you're, that's differentiated instruction yeah. or Hey, you're, you're dealing in lesson study. Oh, that's a, your gr- little group of teachers. That's a PLC, a professional learning community. And it's like through action and through practices that are working, like there's develop things that you could then name, you know, in theory. Yes, yeah. Right. But they're the things that, well, that's just what we do. Right. Those are things that we do, or that's a thing that I've learned. And now I'm going to teach my neighbor how to do it because it works for me. Yeah. Well, it's like that, uh, that exercise you had me help facilitate for you at that conference uh, in Nashville, um, a couple of years ago, um, where, yeah, at least, at least to my recollection, yeah, yeah. where I saw it firsthand, like, uh-huh. um, can't remember exactly what it was. Celebrate the struggle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, where, yeah, it was, there was a group of teachers and, and we just, I opened a Google doc and was just essentially recording all this different stuff that they were doing in their classrooms. Yeah. Here's this um, thing, like whatever it was, like if using some sort of tasks yes. or some sort of leadership, and you were like, all right, how do you do that in your classroom? Yeah, yeah. Cause it's already a good thing that we're looking for. Yeah. And I was just some eighth grader who didn't know anything about like the techniques, but I was just, yeah, just writing them all down, everything that they were saying. And they each walked away. They were like, we have this whole list of new things and the, they weren't getting it from you, the presenter. They no. were getting it from each other. Yeah. Um, and just figuring out like, hey, like we are in classrooms. You had teachers there who had 25 years of experience and some that had like two. And it was just a really cool experience to see them all just being like, hey, this is something that, that we try and it works for us. And someone, and then someone even was like, well, guess what? I tried them in my classroom. doesn't work for me. But they were still able to learn and to gain information from each other and also figure out, well, I did this, but it didn't work. Why did it not work for me, but it worked for you? And just figure out, like, okay, let's, like, get all these techniques and um, be able to share them and just make them a better place. So now you know how the structure of that presentation came from? Bingo. Right here. Yeah. Yeah. And again, like, this idea that, and, and, you know, I'm in a place where we have PhDs and a lot of people with titles and stuff where people want to come in and say, hey, I've got the solution. Miles Horton would never have done that. Miles Horton yep. goes, hey, let's get in there. And my guess is that this, he would say, like, the solution exists within this room. We just have to find it, yeah. right? Or, like, or maybe it's the solution exists, but maybe we need some additional resources to make it happen. And that's where he would come in. And that, again, is, like, all about how I yeah. love to operate. Yeah. In kind of a di- yeah, different sense, I've kind of started to see that with our uh, Dartmouth Political Union. Something that we do is um, we've – had weekly meetings where it's like, essentially we just have like a topic. Um, and it's often a very polarizing topic. Uh, our last one was all about, um, trans athletes in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sent, and people come in and they're like, I believe this very firmly. I believe this very firmly. But then throughout the conversation, we kind of start to find a solution, um, kind of to the problem that, that wasn't really any of the, pol- like the polarized options, but was just something that we were like, okay, from seeing this vast array of opinions, how can we try and like figure out a, a solution? And often like ideas will come out that weren't even heard in the first 
half of half, half of this hour long meeting, but then like they start to come out near the end, you're like, oh, okay, like I can get behind that. Oh, wait, we can like all kind of agree on this, and it just you kind of see that sort of idea. Like it, this works in a lot of different settings. Yeah. So, um, to get more education, so you know, he had his vision for what he wanted to do. This ozone sort of experience, mm-hmm. working with this church where these. I mean, and it w- what was cool is it was also very attractive. Like he had to do give reports, I think, to the Baptist church or wh- whatever church or Presbyterians, I believe. Yeah. He had to give reports like how many people were showing up to his things. And like they were saying, hey, Miles, you shouldn't lie. Like these are way too big numbers. And he's like, that's how many people <laughs> are showing up because we're, we're doing this thing where we're loving on each other. I mean, I'm just facilitating yeah. these conversations where neighbors can love on neighbors, help them solve problems. And we're doing it. Mm-hmm. And people are showing up. And but... But still, he felt like he needed more education on how to actually formalize what he was doing. Um, and so he went to, again, he went to Chicago. Then he went to Denmark where they had these folk schools. And so he started to note the specific, sort of like core tenets, what I would say, what would eventually come out to be the Highlander Folk School, which he saw that in these folk schools in Denmark, he saw students and teachers living together. He saw peer learning. He saw group singing, like singing. Yeah. Um, Freedom from he saw freedom from state regulation. Did see that mm. uh, non vocational education, um, freedom from examinations. Okay, mm. and then social interaction in non formal settings. So like you know, basically parties. You know, yeah. highly a highly motivating purpose and clarity what for and what against. So he had these sort of like core tenets that he put out, and then he would start again making notes, and he would he was connecting a, what he saw there was also connecting back to his ozone experience, and so what was kind of cool is like he w- he saw something in practice, and then he was now seeing what these other people had done and kind of theorized yeah. it a little bit, and then making connections back. One thing he put in some of these core tenets uh, is to organize his thing was to organize a school just well enough to get teachers and students together and see that it gets no better organized. A school that's just organized just well enough to get teachers and students together and see that it gets no better organized. Because I think sometimes when it becomes so organized that you are a teacher, you are a student, versus, well, yeah, you might know a little bit more about this topic, and that's why you're here, but then they know more maybe more about the context. So you need to be a student to the context. They need to be more of a student about this, this concept. And together, you're switching back and forth between teacher and student. Yeah. Or staying away from like a hierarchical kind of system where yeah. it, you have professors at the top who mentor their grad students, oh and the boy. grad students then teach the undergrads. But yeah. just stay away from that. <laughs> but I also thought, well, I mean, I think if you're, if you're doing a good job in your classroom, you're going to create environments where you ne- are going to see something unique. I know Meg Meyer, who is a mentor of mine, she would do the same math problem that she'd come mm-hmm. into my methods class and she would do it. And she did it over and over again. She would always see something new. So she was always mm-hmm. learning through that experience. Yeah. And so it was, and she got so excited about it every time. She's like, oh my gosh, I'd never seen that before. And like, you know, so it's like, again, switching back and forth between teacher and student and being able to like learn in that, those experiences, not as just like a, a novel, but that's like, no, that's a practice. If you're going to be a good teacher, you need to be a good learner. Yeah. Right. And so like, like you're saying, like, we got to mess with that hierarchy a little bit. I think Parker Palmer would call it, um, the, there's a dominant form of truth knowing and truth telling where you kind of see it probably in college now, 
where there's yep. there is the expert and he disseminates knowledge down. And yeah, there is some of those cases, and it's a one way street where it's like it's only going down, it's not going back up. Mm-hmm. Versus having sort of a community of, of of knowledge where yeah, there's 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 an expert that knows a little bit more, but it's through our our interactions with each other and in with the content that we're all going to learn more. Yeah, I mean, yeah, already, yeah, that's what I've seen is like the classes that I enjoy a lot more are the professor assigns readings. You read that kind of on the outside, but then you come to class and you basically try and build off those readings with just the professor as a simple facilitator to make sure that like, yeah, yeah, we're not getting off track. We're saying factually accurate, but you're primarily learning from the perspective of of the perspectives coming from your uh, fellow classmates. Um, That's, yeah, that's been a much more productive way to learn and a much more interesting way to learn too, because not only are you receiving the information from other people, you're receiving it from different perspectives because every single thing that, um, especially as a humanity student, every single thing that I'm receiving information, depending on the lens that you read it through, it determines how you actually will like have it like implanted into you. Um, and so, yeah, here, like with us all reading the exact same text, but people reading it with different backgrounds and then hearing those different backgrounds, you're able to learn a lot more than just a professor getting up there and lecturing. Yeah. When also too, I find that, and this is the, another principle is like the idea of multiplying yourself. Right. And so to simplify or, or to create something that's, if only, if, if you're the only one that can teach it, that means that, you you haven't taught it in a way that others can then teach it, right? Yeah. So it's like you, <laughs> it it ends with you, versus like he wanted to have something that could multiply, right? Yeah. That hey, now that you know, you can then go teach others, right? Over and over again, and you see this later on uh, when he talks about like these um, uh, citizenship schools and things like that, where people would teach each other to read so that they could pass citizenship tests so they could vote, um, and. It became clear that it would only work if everyone had to go to the Highlander Folk School in order to learn how to do that. Like, it became more powerful that it could be multiplied throughout. And one of the most great stories he had is he ran into somebody in Mississippi that was running a, a citizenship school, which they started at, at Highlander, but the person didn't even know that it was started there. The person didn't even <laughs> know that they actually learned. They're like, oh, yeah, I'm just teaching people how to read so we can pass these. Like it became such a, a, a portable design, a multiplication design that it, it traveled so far away that n- no one knew like an origin story, which is exactly what he wanted, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so like this idea of of... You know, in in the book it says, if you're going to work with small groups and your aim is to change society, you know what you need masses of people to accomplish that. You have to work with those people who can multiply what you do, right? Mm-hmm. So that's that's that that idea of like that it moves beyond just you and you you. So you do lose ownership of it, but that's if it's worthwhile, that's what you want, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You don't want everything to have to point back to you um, as a successful leader. Um, you want to be able to create a system that is able to disseminate itself. Um, and that, yeah, that comes in social organizing, um, but also comes in business. Uh, just like, sorry, with you talking about that, it just reminded me, um, I believe we conversed about, um, goodness gracious, I'm forgetting his name, the, the, uh, the economics guy, the budgeting, re- beans and rice. Oh, oh, uh, Dave, Dave Ramsey. Ramsey. Yes. Sorry. That, you just take, t- that tells, uh, baby steps. Me thing I saw from baby steps, baby. Yeah from Dave Ramsey um, where he recently uh, announced that he's planning on retiring because he's essentially been able to disseminate his brand 
and to being able to make it so other people can continue his brand and it doesn't rely on him being in the booth every day recording, being on radio and recording podcasts. He doesn't have to do that anymore because he's been able to create a system where he's able to just leave it and it's able to just grow, grow, grow um, without him. And so, yes, so yeah, like this idea can, is also, yeah, applied to social justice. Um, you talk about Mississippi. Um, that reminds me of Bob Moses, who did go to the Highlander School. Y- yes. Um, and yeah, started some big uh, voter rights uh, work in Mississippi that's still being continued today. Um, in fact, like I, I've been a, if you track the lineage, I was trained by someone who 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 was trained by Bob Moses on how to organize these grassroots um, efforts um, that are still growing even to this day. And it, it just kind of creates this lineage. Um, and yeah, a lot of it can, you can point all back to Highlander for. Yeah. Well, and, and here, this is great because this is one of my favorite stories in this book yeah. uh, because Bob Moses radical equations, previous episode on the a podcast where we talked to Eris Wenger. Um, oh, didn't even realize I was going to yeah, yeah. plug back. That's right. Yeah. Uh, on page, uh, well, in my book, page 165, uh, when the, and this is, I'm just going to read from the text real quick. When the Mississippi Freedom Summer of 65 was in the planning stage, yeah. Bob Moses asked us to do a workshop. And I told him, Bob, you know what I've said. We're not going to run any more workshops because you've got plenty of leadership that we've already worked with. They know what we know. We'll cooperate with them and we'll finance and sponsor it. We'll do anything, but we're not going to take the responsibility for running it. This idea of, hey, it's time to move on. Let's multiply this. Oh, yeah. And he says, and Bob Moses says, just make an exception this one last time. He said, because this is important. I said, no, you can't keep making exceptions. If you want that workshop, you'll have to take the responsibility. I'll be down there, but you'll have to run it. Bob said, well, I can't do it myself because I have to be somewhere else, but I'll get some other people to do it. If that's your condition, we'll do it. This turned out to be one of uh, SNCC's uh, SNCC's most important workshops. I mean, that was the thing. Like he like, okay, what's going to happen? Going back to that as idea of the principles, like, Hey, if we have to keep owning this and moving on, like, it's not, it's going to stop with us versus no, we can't do it. And then Bob's like, well, I can't do it. So we're going to have to empower somebody. And now they can, now we've got more people that are able to, to go and do right. And the love on their neighbors. Oh yeah. And yeah. And then we can see that that work is still, uh, just through that kind of transgression I was talking about earlier, um, as you, you may have remembered, when I was working with uh, Mississippi Votes, that's right. They gave me, I went to a 10 hour training session on Zoom, um, and then they were like, All right, we'll send you any resources you need, but uh, you're on your own, bud. Yeah, pretty much. And it was like, and they were willing, like, they would send me all the forms I needed. Um, they set me You'd up be with supported, like, pens. right? Oh, yeah, yeah I was yeah, yeah. very supported, but they weren't helping me plan it. It was, it was up to me to plan everything. Um, and then, yeah, they were willing to pour in resources, pour in information, note cards. Um, I was giving out bracelets from them um, to get people to register to vote. Um, but, yeah, they it, that kind of disseminating um, line of work where, yeah, we don't need to have the, the, the higher-ups in charge going out to all these different communities to get it done. And that's not, a, that's not an effective strategy. You're not, then you're, you're basically essentially locking down the movement. You're saying that this movement is contained to just these like ten people in this room who who we trust them and, and they can get the job done. Well, guess what? We're not gonna. No movement's actually gonna grow if you're just keeping it locked down. If you're not empowering anyone. Um, I mean, if we want to go back and talk about kind of the biblical stance on that, talk about Jesus as a teacher. He didn't say, "Hey, twelve disciples, like 
make sh- make sure I'm with you before you go do anything. Yeah, like, yeah. Like I need to be there to like Give stand you the over your shoulder. First. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like like we're gonna plan this out first, um, and then we're gonna like use a calculator. No, he told him to go make disciples of all nations and and just to go out. Um, think about the Pentecost, giving the tongues of fire. Um, just to go out and to to do all. Uh, of the work and yeah it d- doesn't need to be this plan coordinated effort and even then like it doesn't even should be on the 12 it, then we want to empower where more and more people to go out and do the work if we're just relying on the central core it's never going to grow yeah well and also to this idea of you know giving and taking as well so it's not just you know going out and like yeah we're empowering folks and it's just it's a one-way street from there no, it's a back and forth. So even too, he tells a story about um, like they were living on beans and rice, speaking of that, <laughs> uh, at their first Highlander folk school that they established. And all of a sudden he comes back and he sees like a, a bag of potatoes on the porch. And he's like, and again, he's in a very rural part, rural part of, of, of Tennessee, you know, very poor. Oh, yeah, he, I mean, I've, I've uh, camped in Mont Eagle. There you go. Yeah. So, you know, that there's only, and he knew that there's only so many people that could have grown potatoes. He knew each of them. <laughs> couldn't really afford to give him a bag of potatoes. And he's, but then he s- said to himself, whoa, 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 whoa. you elitist, <laughs> you elitist person, you give your clothes to people and you enjoy doing it yet. You would deny them the privilege of giving something to you. Right. Wow, yeah. So not only just in the, this idea of, you know, learning and, but you know, this idea of who's doing the giving every in a community, everyone's engaging yeah, yeah. the giving. Right. And is receiving. Right. It's not just a one way street. Like, I'm not just going to go give to you so I can make me feel better. But no, like allowing others to give to you. And I think that's a problem, too, for some folks. Like, are we willing to accept help? Yeah. Right. Right? Or do I have to always be the one giving? So like even if, you know, in in a classroom, if I'm like the expert teacher, well, I can I go to that that second year teacher oh, yeah. and, and I've been around for 15 years, but I bet you I could still learn something from them. Right. Or they can still give me some, some ways of doing things that I haven't learned before or even to my students as yeah, well. Yeah. 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 Is your student in your calc class coming up with a new method to, uh, to revolve this line? Um, and do we em- empower that or, and learn from that and potentially teach that to the next crop of students? Um, I think Coach Bauman has the Noah method that he was teaching. Oh yeah, for a little bit. But, wow. Uh, yeah, yeah. Know that. Um, so selfish plug. Right exa- there. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there's some other thing. You know, getting into some of the nitty gritty of the um, the the Highlander Folk School some, from within the book. I mean, I could do a couple episodes on this book, but he had this thing the the idea of the citizenship school um, was again someplace where they learned. Uh, people would learn how to read so they could pass a citizenship test so they could be registered to vote, right? And that was a big thing in, in the South, uh, more yeah, importantly. Yeah. That was barriers to, for people to Yeah, to, yeah, it's slightly problematic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But he would keep visualizing the solution. Mm-hmm. And I like that because, you know, sometimes as a teacher, we'll come up with a new strategy or something, but do you visualize everything? I mean, he would talk about visualize, well, how often could you meet? These are people that you know, might not normally be in a school setting and you'd have to have them come to a school. So, okay. So, you know, every day, no, 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 that's probably not going to work. So maybe twice a week. Okay. Twice a week, that'd be good. And then how long would that be? And so he kept visualizing what this solution would look like. And then he would reverse it and think like, okay, is there another way completely? If we, we got rid of everything and start over again, what would it like? He kept going over and over again and then actually having then to put it in practice and see what does it look like in context for each of these places in order to get these citizenship schools to happen again. So they could be repeatable. They didn't have to have all yeah. this like 
um, you know, curriculum and whatever, but they could just, you know, happen with somebody who maybe doesn't identify as a teacher, but was a, uh, they use a lot of times they use the the person that owned the hair salon in town. Again, an independent businesswoman that uh, didn't uh, need support from people that didn't want them to vote. Right. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah. so someone that, you know, who should be running these places. Um, and then just this idea of, you know, not, there's another thing about don't worry about the insignificant, um, the insignificant things. So, for example, they were doing these schools and workshops and places where people worked with their hands all the time. Okay. And so they would hand them pencils. And he said that pencils would be snapping all over the place because <laughs> these people had such strong hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's like, you know, but he's like, don't worry about it. We got plenty of pencils to go around. And it was like, that's a really, I mean, the fact that they're in the room, they're doing the things. And yeah, yeah we're snapping pencils, but it's okay. Like, hey, that's an insignificant detail, an insignificant thing. And so not to, you know, to, to, for, to put those things aside and know that what's important, what's the focal thing. And again, helping people solve their problems is what's important. The fact is that we're running through pencils all the time. That's not that big a deal. Yeah. Right? Or yeah. And or take it to the classroom. Like that, that one kid that just needs, need needs to be standing up to do his work. Like or you, you remember you would perch on your desk oh, yeah. in, in Ms. Uh, Parrish's classroom. Yeah. yeah. I can drove me though. nuts, man. Holy cow. But yeah, insignificant. It wasn't significant because, like, it bothered me, and I was like, "That's not good." But then seeing uh, seeing Ms. Parrish, and she's like, "No, no, no." She says that's and there's a kid sitting on the floor. There's kids, you know, standing up, but everyone was paying attention to you. That was what was uh, paying attention to her, and that was what was significant. Was the fact is they were engaged. You all had indicators of engagement. Didn't matter where you were, like yeah. located in the classroom. Yeah, but, yeah. That was that was kind of the the idea there. Like this idea of having having a mindset about what's important. Right? Yes. Yeah. Um, there was some uh, some bad things that happened at the Highlander. Not some bad things, but I mean, eventually there was people that did not like that he was leading organization movements. Yeah. Things like that. There's people in power that did not like that, and eventually their first location got wait, shut down. Wait, people in power didn't like. Small workers rising up? Yeah, did not like that. Yeah, and then didn't like the civil rights movement. And then, so in the 25th anniversary, there is a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. um, in one of the classrooms. And and there's a big, like, billboard that says, there's MLK in a communist school. (laughs) And, yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that were people just were, uh, yeah, against, against what they were doing, right? Yeah. And so one time they 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 lost their land. There, someone put a padlock on them, on their door, and they had to completely move to another location. But still, just again, conviction, and that didn't stop them. They kept going on with their uh, with their work. Um, yeah, I guess the other, you know, there's so many other again, so many other things I wanted to talk about. But the the idea of trusting um, trusting the students. Uh, mm-hmm. in this case. So there's some things where they had workshops and sometimes they they didn't quite know how the workshops would go. And so they'd bring in a, um, you know, maybe some expert to come talk about something. Yeah, yeah. But then it turns out that when the people came, these community members came to, to talk about the problem that they were going to address, like it would go in a different direction. And this expert that they brought in, their expertise was not needed. Yeah. And so the guy's like, Hey, I'm here to talk about this. When do I, when do I get to talk? And like, well, they don't really need you. <laughs> Yeah, I mean that's that happened. I was a, 
I was a conference pres- uh, presenter at the Mississippi Scholastic Press Association's uh, conference last year. Um, and I was supposed to be leading a workshop on just opinion writing. Um, just supposed to be teaching them like, hey, these are some things that I do in my newspaper. Let's try and impart this. Um, very quickly, it turned into, uh, okay, I'm not allowed to write my opinions. <laughs> um, and like h- half the seminar, because I was like, I got up with this presentation. I'm like, all right, you want to be thought provoking. You want to do things to challenge the system. You want to make it so when people read this, they are merely hooked in because guess what? They haven't even heard an idea like this before. And what I quickly learned was they were like, yeah, if I did any of those things, we're not getting published. We're losing our funding. Um, yeah. and the sheriff's coming. <laughs> like, right. It's, it, it, they were just like, we can't do this in rural Mississippi. Um, and so I was very quickly in, in the best way possible shut down. But what happened was we still were able to see a very fruitful discussion take place among those who did have these, essentially these sanctions on their newspapers where they were like, well, I I'm in this newspaper out here in the Delta. Um, everything that we, we publish in our opinion section has to be approved by our school principal. Oh wow. So we're like, so we do this, this, and this strategy in order to kind of be able to like make sure that we're we're still pr- promoting an interesting section, something that's interesting uh, that people want to read, but doesn't necessarily get people angry. Um, and we can still have thoughts about our school. We can still say, "Hey, um, we think that this lunch policy of we we should have we should have an hour long lunch." Well, guess what? We were able we were able to sit down with our principal and be like, "Hey." Do you mind if we just want to say that the students would think that we should have an hour long lunch instead of a 30 minute lunch? Can we like, are we okay to publish that? We just want to share that, that this isn't a thought that students have. And that actually started a conversation at their school from just having that conversation with their principal beforehand, um, before they even published this article that was essentially like, Hey, we want like, Oh, students are supporting this. And then the principal was even like, well, could you actually find a student that says that? No, I'd rather have the 30 minute lunch. And they were like, Sure. And so they found people on both sides and were able to to publish this kind of versus article. Um, and yeah, so like, and this is just the kind of idea that, yeah, we can learn from each other. And I was just sitting there in the front of the classroom and being like, all right, I guess this is what we're doing. Yeah. And because that's what, that's what needed to happen. It, they need me to, to lecture about how you can write things that might get you canceled on Twitter. Like you didn't have to do that. Right. And so like being thinking about your positionality and like not coming in with a a plan but if you're actually doing what we would say is formative assessment is thinking about where people are at like if you would have just kept going on about what you could do at oxford mississippi and writing opinion pieces which they're out there online oh yeah yeah, yeah they're there yeah, yeah um, check out the charger online <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah. but uh but actually then i mean you would have just lost most of your audience there yeah in having that conversation so, um, you know, just to you know, be uh, respectful of time, um, there's a couple other, one other story I want to talk about. Again, this idea of being principled but rooted in reality. Yeah. Um, there's a, a story about Martin Luther King in there that I thought was pretty interesting where uh, the, you know, he was obviously a very principled guy as well, where his organization, he, he had come out with this stance against Vietnam, um, 
you know, just as a as a convo that we as the U.S. Did, should not be a part of it or, or whatever, like yeah. the stance. And then the SCLC said was having an organizational meeting, like, well, let's be careful. It's like, well, what what is our stance on Vietnam? And he's and Martin Luther King was like, no, 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 this is my stance on Vietnam. The SCLC, you can have a different stance, but this is my stance. Yeah, yeah. And so then again, this idea of putting uh, confront with a dilemma. And so basically at that point in time, the SCLC had to say like, oh, are we with Martin Luther King yeah. Jr. or not? And it was like, it was like, like making it like known, like, no, no, no. And my principles, I cannot do this other, I cannot yeah, yeah. be for that. And so if you want to me to be a part of this, which they did, um, then you need to have the same stance as well. Again, yeah. confront with a dilemma and make the actions happen. Yeah. Over and over again, there are examples in this book where that is the case. Yeah. And we shouldn't have to, like, just if you're a part of an organization, you shouldn't have to agree with every single part of that organization be part of it. If we don't have nuanced opinions within individual organizations, then we're essentially entirely lacking. We're essentially just silencing the power of that organization if we're just simply saying that we need to be all on like one page, well, guess what? We're never going to get anywhere and we're actually going to become worse off because we're not having nuanced opinions within ourselves. Yeah. But I could go on and on for that for hours, yeah. as you know, but yeah. Well, one of the final things that I thought was really important here is uh, within the book and one of the core tenets, and and you kind of see it, in, you know, when I said before in the picture was Pete Seeger, one of the great folk singers, their thing was also, if we're going to do this work together, we need to do life together, which mm. meant eating together, breaks together, yeah, like yeah. being in, and they're, they're in a rural setting, being in, in a natural setting to experience uh, God's creation together, um, singing together, dancing together, mm. you know, all together. And this was, again, you know, he's doing things uh, in an integrated way, uh -huh. way before um, the civil rights movement was happening. Yeah. And so again, that was another reason why people didn't like what was going on at the Highlander Folk School. And uh, but this idea of that stress, like this is important. Like, yes. I know it's not just, it's not just something. Yeah, we should probably do that. That's probably good. No, no, no. That's part of how we do the work is by doing that. If you're talking about building relationships, about blurring the lines between student and teacher, mm -hmm. you got to Let's have coffee together. Let's have a meal together. Yeah. Let's sing together. Let's dance together. Like all that sort of stuff that's happening together. And this idea of we're doing life together. Yeah. And I, I think that's really important as a, you know, uh, I'm finding that as being a part of a small town, uh, which is where we're at in Oxford, Mississippi, is like there's lots of blurred lines between, um, you know, community people and, and school and teacher. Like there's – you're doing life together. You see people at the grocery store. You yeah. see people at the game. You see people in the Grove. You see people, you know, at, at church or whatever. And we're doing life together, and I think that makes the work that we do better as well. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, Noah, anything else? Oh, wait. Okay. So you've had your first, uh, your first semester of college. First quarter. First quarter. I'm only a third of the way done. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Year, first yeah. quarter of college. Uh, w this is about teaching. This podcast is about learning how to teach better. What's one thing that you saw? You're like, hey, that was pretty good with regards to teaching. Yeah. Um, or what was the best thing you saw? I mean, I think I already kind of highlighted on this, but the, yeah. and, and this is a much more, uh, higher ed principle, but the, the flipped classroom, I love it so much. 
Um, so what do you mean by that? All, so all my classes are flipped classroom, which essentially means that you do all the like, all the like, uh, essentially information dumping. That all happens on your own. They send you things to read. Um, one of my professors even had a video lecture that we would watch mm-hmm. before the class. Um, the, essentially, the lectures that she used to give in the class. But um, they, this and a lot of this came out of COVID. Of hey, we don't want to keep kids on Zoom for a two hour right. long lecture. We're going to yeah. create all these video lectures. And she, then she was just like, "Well, I have these video lectures I created in COVID. Why don't I just send these to to y'all?" And then in our classroom can be devoted towards uh, just discussion. So all my classes were just discussion sections. Um, where we just talked about the things that we had read. Um, and I, that's something that I enjoyed immensely um, because I wasn't just sitting in a classroom and listening to someone drone on about a topic. I was able to learn on my own pace um, because I would essentially have like a day, um, day and a half to get all the readings done before class. Um, and so, yeah, able to take it all at your own pace, um, read when you're comfortable, uh, take as much time as you need to disseminate the information um, if you're reading something, you're like, oh, that confused me. Or, oh, I don't know the background of this. You can Google it right there. You don't feel like you're being disrespectful to any professor. Right. Um, so that's something that I really enjoyed was the flipped classroom. And then, yeah, you get inside and you can uh, have discussions. Um, and, yeah, that's something I really enjoyed. Awesome. Well, as always, Noah, I appreciate you and uh, appreciate your willingness to join me or, you know, I appreciate you as a son and appreciate yeah. you and Amit. No problem. I get dinner now, right? Yeah, we, no, get, to, I'm yeah, we get to eat. All right. Thanks, Noah. All right. No problem. Well, that's fun. You know, when I asked Noah to join me for this conversation, I mean, I knew he had read the book, and I was searching for different folks to talk to me <laughs> about this book. And just, you know, there's a couple of people I'd asked and a couple of people I thought about asking But then knowing that we had read this book as part of our kind of year of growth together and why not? And he's, he loves to talk about it and he, he has ideas about organizations and taking action and it's kind of what he wants to do. And so why not? And, you know, part of the thing I talk about with this podcast is, Hey, get an opportunity to have a good conversation but so getting to have a good conversation with my son and then getting to share that with others, that's good. I'll take that. I'll take that every day. All right. That's going to do it for this episode of Amadon Planet. Show notes can be found at amadonplanet.com forward slash episode 102. Now, for those of you looking for ways to support the podcast, you can subscribe, rate, and review, and share this episode, which will allow more people looking for similar content to find it. In addition, you can subscribe to the Abaddon Planet download, which is containing teaching resources and updates from Abaddon Planet. You can also submit a question, comment, or suggestion to the mailbag by sending an email to joel at amadonplanet.com. In addition, I'm always looking for opportunities to work with those who are looking to lead people to love others through teaching. If you have an event or opportunity to share, you can either send an email to joel at amadonplanet.com or head to amadonplanet.com uh, slash about to fill out the request a call form. Finally, check out the Amazon Planet store or Amazon Planet bookshop. Links are in the footer at amazonplanet.com where your purchases support the production costs of the podcast. Thank you for spending time on Amazon Planet. Uh, thanks to Noah for sharing his time and expertise and his perspectives on the book. Thanks to Matt Mifflin for the music in this episode. And finally, thank you to all of you out there learning to teach better and be the good in the world by investing in the lives of others. This world is a better place because you have decided to use the gifts you've been given to serve others. Thank you for all that you do. Peace.